You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Look at you, all bright and shiny. For those of you online, thank you for tuning in. This is what you're missing out on, is just this big ball of energy, mainly Aaron Nelson, but uh, everyone else has certainly included that as well. If you're a guest, I wanna personally, once again, say welcome to you, glad that you are here. You know, prior to the year 2020, we were already in the midst of a powerful and dreadful pandemic. That may surprise some of you. Yes, uh, prior to 2020. For example, uh, in uh, 2018, Cigna released a study, a survey, 20,000 American people uh, who were um, surveyed, and what it found was there was a growing, and I mean growing, problem of loneliness within our country. 46% said that they felt alone, sometimes or always. Uh, 47% said that they feel left out regularly. 27% say they rarely or never feel as though people understand them. Uh, Now, as a point of comparison, in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, 11 to 20% of Americans felt lonely. 11 to 20% 1970s and 80s, up to nearly 50% in 2018. Now, there's a few reasons I, I have, I can speculate on why those numbers have increased. For one, in the 70s and 80s, music was a lot better. <laughs> People were just happier. They were listening to better music, right? Uh, the 90s was also certainly pinnacle music, but it got a little dark. And um, in addition to that, technology was born at, a, at at least the way that we understand it today. The internet, social media, sort of the precursors of social media. And that certainly contributes to this growing feeling of loneliness in the world. Social media is a major part of that. It, it turns out that when you know what everyone else is doing, it only highlights the fact that you're also not doing it. Uh, beyond that... When you see people that you know on vacation or hiking, or I always, I love the hiking picture. The hiking pictures are the best because they look so happy. No one is happy hiking. You will not convince me otherwise. No one is happy doing this. It's, I'm, I'm convinced it's a thing in our country. You're literally just walking up hills. Well, how is that fun? It's not fun. But what happens is the pictures on social media look so curated and wonderful that when you finally take your family out hiking and everyone is complaining and sweating and one of the kids throws up and the other pees their pants and you're like, let's just go home, right? Uh, This is what social media brings to us. It's a comparison game and it is not a good one. Social media is meant to connect the world and it actually has only made us perhaps more disconnected. It was meant to connect us to a larger social circle and uh, it actually makes us lonelier. Now that is all prior to 2020. 2020 is sort of that like landmark moment that a lot of things changed in our world. After the global pandemic, when many people were told to and sometimes forced to isolate, feelings of loneliness only increased. 57% of Americans now, single or not, eat all of their meals alone. 57%. 
47% of Americans say that they are in no meaningful relationships, that they are surface, that there is no real depth, that again, no one really knows them or understands them. And this is not just in America either. COVID impacted the whole world. 75 million Europeans live socially isolated. Uh, 36% Europeans are embarrassed to admit that there is no one in their lives that they share holidays with. And that is holidays in the way that we mean it, not Europeans. They, they mean vacation when they say holiday. I mean it in the holiday, the real way, right? Um, <laughs> shots fired to the Europeans. Um, when you look at the stats by age, it doesn't get any better. You would expect, at least me, I expect that, that the older populations would feel lonelier, just given the stage of life, empty nesters. 40% of people 65 and older struggle with feelings of loneliness. Compare that to 80% of 18 and under. Those are our kids that are in the highest population of loneliness in the country. 43% uh, ages 17 to 25 feel lonely. Here's, here's the deal. This isn't good for us. Uh, in more ways than you can imagine. Apart from the spiritual ramifications of loneliness, there are physical effects to it as well. There's ample data in the medical community of the negative effects of loneliness on the human body. You are at a 60% increased risk of functional decline within your body. It means your body and the way that it was functionally meant to, to work stops working when you live a, an isolated life. 45% greater risk of early death. So you die sooner, the lonelier you are. Now, why do we begin this glorious Sunday morning with all this terrible information? We're wrapping up our series this morning that we've titled The Culture War, and we've been talking about ways in which Christians are called to leave their mark on the world around them, on the, the hostile culture that they exist within. And the reality is, the more that you engage in the public square, the more you contend for your faith, the more you stand for truth, the more unpopular you will likely be in the world, which means the more hated you will be, the more reviled you will be, the more abandoned you will be, and perhaps isolated from those worldly relationships you will be. And if the church is not the community that she was intended to be in the New Testament, that makes for a lot of lonely Christians. And that is something that we were never intended to be that we were never intended to suffer. So this morning, we're gonna wrap up this series on the culture war, and we're gonna talk about the importance of community within this context, within the context of, of living in a hostile culture and engaging in culture with truth and with a biblical worldview, how community fits into all of this. Because what I will submit to you up front is that community is extremely important in the context of the culture war. As the world becomes more divided and more hostile towards Christian ideas, ideas, and as ministry becomes uh, more necessary, but certainly more difficult as well, we are going to ask, how does community, not only within the local church, but in the church universal, impact us as Christians? How does Christian community serve to help us accomplish our mission that God has given us? How does community make us more able to live this stuff out, in other words? Is it a helpful thing or is it, does it deter us from accomplishing God's mission? I will argue for the former, that it is helpful, that it is not only helpful, but that it is necessary. So let's talk three ways that we can depend upon Christian community within the context of the culture war. First, we lean on 
community relationships. We lean on community relationships. Relationships matter in the church. Uh, the, the church is not simply a place that you come to. Uh, it is a community. It is a family. When you think about city on a hill, uh, you don't think about the building, the brick and mortar. You look around this room. This is city on a hill, right? This is the church, the ecclesia. That's the Greek terminology. It's literally the called out ones, the ones who are called out from the world and set apart into their own own sacred, holy category. Yes, you are sacred and holy, believe it or not. I know. It's hard to believe most days, but it is what God's word says. You are called out from the world. And, and so how, how, does this, how does this impact us within the, 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 the culture that we exist in? The relationships matter a great deal. Uh, I think that primarily in the local church is where that should happen for what it's worth. Uh, certainly you can have relationships, Christian relationships outside of the local church, but I, I really think that the primary place that you engage in, find intimacy within uh, per the New Testament model is the local context. But they're vital in so many ways. And, and so I wanna talk about three of them, three ways that relationships are vital for us as we approach the culture around us. Number one, uh, relationships are vital for ministry. Look at verse 12. Paul says, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. This is Paul's words to Titus. Paul references two individuals, Artemis and Tychicus, uh, two people that Paul is in community with, people that he could lean on for a variety of purposes, none perhaps more than the purposes of ministry. In other words, Paul didn't attempt to do the ministry that he was doing alone. He had people in his life that he depended on. One of them is the recipient of this letter, Titus. He's the one that has, has been the receiver, the recipient of everything that we've been talking about over the last eight weeks. Remember, all the way back in first, the first week that we talked about Titus, he, we said he was a Greek Christian. He was a co-laborer of Paul. Galatians 2.3 says that uh, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. We learned that Titus was not a Jewish uh, co-laborer of Paul's, that he was a Greek. 2 Corinthians 8.23, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker or co-laborer for your benefit. And now here in Titus 3.12, we learn of two other relationships that Paul saw as vital for his ministry, Artemis and Tychicus. Artemis, uh, there's, there's not much known about him. He's only mentioned here. This is his big claim to fame, right? Uh, he's that guy that just never stops talking about that one golden moment. When the, the Apostle Paul wrote his name in that one letter. Uh, Tychicus, on the other hand, mentioned several places. So in Acts chapter 20... Paul travels to a place called Macedonia, and uh, he encourages several Christians there. From there, he travels to Greece, uh, and in verse 3, it says that a plot was made against him by the Jews. And so, as a result of this increasing hostility, he moves away from Greece back to Macedonia, and his plan is to travel from Macedonia to a place called Troas. And uh, it says that in Troas, there were already a group of people, relationships that Paul had that were there that were going to be vital for his ministry moving forward. And verse 4 names them. These are the people that were vital to Paul's ministry. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus. And Gaius of Derby and Timothy. That's the Timothy that Paul writes first and second Timothy to. And, and then, maybe not the most PC of way describing them, the Asians, Tychicus, 
and Trophimus. So there he is, Asian co-laborer, friend of Paul, Tychicus. He's mentioned again in Ephesians 6.21. Paul says, so that you may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. Colossians 4.7, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant of the Lord. By the way, can we just talk for a moment, ladies, who have this trend, and I'm, I'm supportive of it, okay? Uh, I didn't do it myself, but I'm supportive of it, of naming your children Bible names. Why is Tychicus never chosen? <laughs> this is a killer name. He's named several times. I mean, it's a major name in the Bible. He's, these are several books where you come across Tychicus. This is, I'm just saying, I'm going to put it out there. Perspective moms. Tychicus is on the table. He'll be both unique and biblical. We have enough Timothys. We have enough Pauls. We need a Tychicus in the house, please. Notice that he calls Tychicus a fellow servant. I love this in the Greek. It's the Greek term sundulos. It's a word that's actually a compound word in Greek. It's a, a compound word for those of you who really fresh you. Uh, two words that are sort of smashed together to make a new word. Uh, this is the Greek preposition soon, which um, it denotes the idea of union. Of, of coming together, uh, and then the term doulos, which is a word we've talked about quite a bit in this series, slave. It's usually, uh, usually translated as servant, but really probably more accurately meant slave. And so literally, soon doulos is a fellow slave of the same master, a fellow slave of the same master. In other words, Paul saw Tychicus as a slave to Christ like himself. They were slaves to the same master. They were servants of the same house. Paul's tasks as a missionary were the same. His goals were the same as Tychicus's tasks and goals. So they could lean on one another, right? They had the same goal in mind. They were ushering in the kingdom of God through the proclamation of the gospel. And, and so they, they found one another as helpful to lean on one another as they were carrying out that task. So let me just ask a question. What would it look like in our context at City on a Hill if we viewed our relationships in the church as not just people that we see and enjoy talking to, but as literally fellow slaves of Jesus? How would that change the dynamic here? If you viewed your relationships within the context of the local church as not just friends, but as fellow sufferers, as fellow servants, as fellow slaves of God. You see, relationships are vital for ministry. We serve the same master. We have the same end goal, or at least we should. This is why we spent a whole week talking about the, the problem of divisiveness within the church and why elders are given such a high charge to deal with divisive people. Because when a divisive person creeps into the body of Christ, they are no longer a fellow servant of Jesus. They are not operating as such. They're no longer serving the same master. They are serving someone else. Usually it's themselves, but sometimes it's another ideology. They're no longer laboring for the objectives of the spirit. They're laboring for their own objectives, and this creates problems and tension within the body. That's why we're told to remove them if they're not willing to repent. Relationships are vital. I can't tell you how necessary this has been for 
my own life. There are people in my life, uh, many of whom are staff and elders, who are vital to the ministry that God has given me at City on a Hill, to, to reaching my objectives that I believe God has given me, relationships that I can lean into for ministerial support, to help me accomplish what God has led me to accomplish, and for me to help them accomplish what God has called them to accomplish. It goes both ways. Paul not only benefited from Tychicus and Artemis and Titus, but they benefited from him as well. It's a two-way street. Relationships in ministry are so vitally important. We need them in order to carry out what God has, has called us to carry out. They're vital. Number two, they're vital for accountability. You know, one of the major ideas in the book of Titus has been the importance of living above reproach regardless of who you are, right? Regardless of, of who you are, what your role is within the local church, it is extremely important. We talk a lot about how elders are to live above reproach, and that is certainly true. Qualifications for elders are over and above what the uh, general Christian is called to. But all of us, regardless of how long you've been a believer, I mean, mature, godly, been walking with Jesus longer than, than I've been alive, all the way down to someone saved yesterday, today. If you got saved this morning, you're included as well. The whole spectrum, the whole, I didn't want you to think like, well, what about me? I prayed this morning. <laughs> you're included too, all right? Everyone. Everyone is called to live above reproach, to conduct yourself in a manner that, that puts you above accusation in the world. It, it, it's to, to live in such a way where it's very difficult to accuse you of doing anything contrary to what you stand for as a believer. It's an important goal for us to aim for. We want to live above reproach. Amen. Amen. What if I told you that living above reproach is not possible in isolation? That relationships are actually not helpful to living above reproach but required for living above reproach. It is true, it is very true. Everyone, listen, everyone in this room has a blind spot. Everyone in this room has a weakness that you may or may not be aware of, but that you are certainly fully unaware of when you are operating in it. It's true. So having someone in your life that can speak truth to you Preferably people who can speak truth to you, not just one person, but a multitude of people who can speak to those weaknesses, that can speak to those blind spots, who know you well, who have been empowered by you, will address you when you move off center is so important. I want to talk very clearly for a moment about how to do this because I think many of you want to be accountable. Many of you want accountability in your lives. You're just not really sure how to do it, how to go about it. And so I want to give you just an elementary way of doing this. There's certainly more well-developed ways and, and, and depending on what you're needing accountability for will in great ways determine the kind of accountability you need. But, but just at a base level, let me just tell you how this works. You pick someone who is safe who is close to you, who knows you well, and who is of the, uh, the same sex. Say it that way. So guys, you get guy accountability partners. Ladies, lady accountability partners. It's never wise to, to have the opposite sex for very many obvious reasons. It's never wise to have your husband or wife as your accountability partner. Be in, intimate, be truthful, be transparent, all that is fine. But your wife, guys, will make a terrible accountability partner. You need a man in your life 
to call you on the carpet. Amen, men. Amen. You need someone who will speak truth to you, but with grace. So you identify that person, you go to them, and you say, hey, I want to live above reproach, and there are some things in my life that are preventing me from doing that well. Would you be willing to hold me accountable to those things? And then you sit down or call once a week, have a set time, and you meet that time you make sure you are consistent, and you tell them, if you see me moving off center, would you call me out on that? Would you address that in my life? That is how you do it. You identify them, you empower them, you set a time, and you go to work. We can, re- we can lean on relationships. We should lean on relationships within the community of the local church. They're vital for ministry. They're vital for accountability. They're vital, third, for spiritual growth. This is how God designed us to grow, isn't it? by challenging and sharpening one another. You've probably heard the verse a thousand times, especially if you've been to any, any men's conference, any men's conference in the church. It's not a men's conference until Proverbs 27, 17 is quoted. Iron sharpens iron, and so one man sharpens another. By the way, it's not just for men. Women can sharpen women too. It, it does work that way. This is more of generalities that Proverbs is dealing with here. You're meant to grow in your faith together with other people. Even in this passage, we see Paul doing this. He indicates that he's, he's, the reason he's sending either Artemis or Tychicus, and by the way, I love that he hasn't made up his mind yet. He's like, yeah, I'm gonna probably send either Artemis or Tychicus. You'll find out when they get there. Like, it's, it's not very, I can just relate to that. I love that. Uh, the, the reason he's sending them is to replace Titus for a season. I'm sending Artemis or Tychicus to replace you for a season. Why? So that Titus can leave Crete and go to Nicopolis where Paul intends to spend the winter, presumably so Paul can continue to disciple him. He's like, hey, so I mean, you gotta get this. This is really interesting. Paul has left Titus in charge. Titus is the pastor there. He's the pastor in Crete over over a few churches. There were likely more than one church in, in Crete. And so Paul leaves Titus in charge. He writes him a letter giving further instruction on how to carry all of this out. So Titus is like a fully grown, mature believer in Christ, but he's also like, hey, do that for a little while, and then when Artemis or Tychicus show up, come join me in the winter so I can disciple you more. This brings up an important point. When when we think about discipleship, when we talk about discipleship, usually the way we think about it is an older, more mature person taking in a younger, less mature person to grow them up in their faith, prepare them for the ministry that God has for them, whatever that looks like. I'm not talking about occupational ministry, I just mean whatever God has called you to do, there's an older, more mature person that takes you under their wing and prepares you and grows you up into whatever God is calling you to do. And once that younger, less mature person has had sufficient discipleship, whatever that looks like, it's different for everyone, and they're, they're at a point where their maturity level is, is well-rounded. They're let loose to go and do that thing that God has called them to do. And usually, they are expected to repeat the pattern, to take another person less mature than them under their wing and, and do the whole process over again. And this is how discipleship multiplies in the church. We rarely ever consider, when we talk about this, that after that person is released into ministry and expected to take a younger person under their wing, that they still need discipleship after that. Titus was not a baby Christian. He was a pastor. He's raising up elders to serve in local churches. He's contending for the faith. He's a co-laborer of the great apostle Paul. And yet, 
he is still encouraged to meet Paul in the winter. Why? Because discipleship is not just for new Christians, it's for all Christians. You don't graduate from this stuff, in other words. So let me ask you, who are you doing discipleship with? You need this in your life. We talk a lot about, like, no one would have, when we talk about discipleship in the church, people are like, yeah, we need to do that. Yeah, discipleship is good. That's a good Christian thing. Well, what are, how, how are you doing with it? It's, it's one of those things we talk a lot about as if it's sort of just like mystically happening around us. But are we really engaging in relationships for the purpose of growing spiritually in our lives? You need this in your life. That's what scripture says. There is a time where you will no longer need this, where you will graduate from discipleship, when you die. But until then, until then, you need it. You're still growing. You're still maturing. In the, con- in, in the context of the culture war, we need community relationships desperately. Do not think that you can do this stuff by yourself. You can't. Lean in to the relationships that you have in this community. And if you don't have any, evaluate why. Usually people, in my experience, 15 years of being here, my experience is that when people complain they have no community, they've made very little effort to actually plug in usually out of fear or, or some skepticism, which is fine. I can connect with that. I understand that. But lean in. It'll change your whole world if you get plugged into a, a, a relationship or relationships that challenge you where you are right now. Second, we leverage community resources. Again, uh, contending for the truth is hard. It's coupled uh, with a, a just difficult life, if we're being honest. Life is not easy. And, and there are going to be times when you need help. And we need people to help us. We need people for support, for, for resourcing. And the community of God has so much to offer with regard to resources. Let's talk about three of them in particular. The first resource that we find in the community of faith, in the local church, is what I just said, support. Look at verse 13. It says, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they lack nothing. Two more uh, characters introduced here. Two other people that we haven't come across yet in Titus. Zenos, uh, only time Zenos is mentioned here. And then Apollos is, mentioned, again, several places like Tychicus, uh, several places throughout the New Testament. He's first introduced in Acts 18.24. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man. I love that. What a what high praise. An eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. When you look through 1 Corinthians, uh, you find Apollos in several places that Paul mentions. He's a close co-laborer of Paul. Now, both Zenos and Apollos were in Crete with Titus. They were there. But it seems as if they're not intended to stay there. Paul says, do your best to speed them on their way, to move them along. And critically, he includes, see that they lack nothing. You see, to travel in the ancient world was no small expense. You you needed adequate supplies, you needed clothing, uh, you needed financial support. Missionary work in the ancient world required a fair amount of resourcing. It is true for us today. Missionaries require resources, they require support. And often in the early church, it was Christian communities that would pitch in and give for the cause of supporting missionaries as they were going about the ministry that God called them to. And that is the context here in Titus 3, support for missionaries. That's the first kind of support that we talk about uh, when we talk about this. We do this at City on a Hill. 
We not only give to our denomination's cooperative fund, which is, by the way, the largest singular missionary fund in the world. I don't know if you're aware of that. Southern Baptists are bad at a lot of things. We're very good at missions. So um, there's that. Uh, Also... Listen, I go to a Baptist seminary, all right? I'm not, I'm not talking down on them. I'm just saying we've, we've taken our licks. We've had our moments. Um, we also support many independent missionaries as well. Apart from the denominational support, we do independent missionaries. So uh, a few weeks ago, we brought up Mike and Janelle Richard. Uh, who, uh, Janelle is the daughter of Roger and Leanne Hanna, who are also missionaries we have supported for many years here at City on a Hill. Uh, We support beyond individual missionaries, we support other churches. Uh, We give money to several small plants around the United States, uh, and actually even to one church in Nakuru, Kenya, uh, churches that have adopted, for the most part, the hospital church ministry uh, that we conduct here and that we train and equip other pastors to do as well. In fact, next week, I'm going to be in one of those church plants for Sunday in Cibolo, Texas with Taryn Phillips, Refuge Church. That was a plant that came out of the hospital church ministry, and uh, I'm going to be going to visit them this coming weekend and uh, planning on, on preaching there on Sunday. James will be back here uh, to share about some of the things that he has been working through. He is right now interviewing Max Lucado uh, for the Fearless series for men. So uh, there's a whole kind of networking that's happening right now from church to church and organization to organization. Uh, and, and one of the things that, that we find in the New Testament is that these smaller plants or smaller churches that are experiencing some kind of seasonal difficulty are often supported by other churches in their direct area. So for example, in uh, Romans 15:26, Paul reports, he says, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. So he's referring to these as cities, the churches in the cities. The church in Macedonia, uh, the church in Achaia have been pleased. It has been pleasing to them to be able to pool money together and send to the church in Jerusalem to care for some of the poor saints that are there. They put it together. Paul talks about the procedure of collecting money to send to Jerusalem in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. So if you're interested in reading the background for that, uh, that's where he talks about it, how he was to go about collecting money from various churches, Galatia was included in there as well, to bring to Jerusalem to help this small church that was experiencing a fair amount of persecution. Number three, we, uh, we find support, leverage support for families. Uh, we've had to do this a lot this year and, and last year as well. Some of you have had a very difficult time since COVID. Marketplace has changed. Uh, companies have let people go. Some of you have needed assistance, and we have been able to help that cause. One of the ways that we leverage resources as a local church is by applying the tithes and offerings in the biblical manner that we see in the early church. And for example, in the model of Acts where the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but that everything was in common. That's Acts 4.32. That's the, that's the mindset that we carry here. That, that when one part of the body suffers, we want to be able to help that part of the body. We want to be able to bring assistance and care to that part of the body. We leverage resources for support. We also leverage resources for skill sets. Notice that Paul talks about Zenos. He refers to him as the lawyer. Uh, this is not the same kind of lawyer that we would have today 
necessarily. It's very some similarities, but definitely different. Uh, these were experts in Jewish Old Testament mosaic law. They were more scholars probably than they were practitioners. But notice that his occupation is mentioned. It's not just Zenos, it's Zenos the lawyer. People knew him as such, presumably because they would go to him when they had law-related questions. And Paul makes a habit of this. He does this in several places. Uh, For example, Colossians 4.14, he refers to Luke as Luke, the beloved doctor. In Romans 16.23, he refers to Erastus as Erastus, the city treasurer. Matthew, the tax collector. Alexander, the coppersmith. There's several of them throughout the New Testament where these are individuals known not only by their name, but by their occupation, by their skill set, presumably because that skill set was helpful to the church. The church is comprised of many people with many different experiences and many different skill sets, and we would be crazy not to utilize those skill sets when, when possible. Many of you have been to Refuge Ranch over the last year, and you have seen the pavilion that we have there that is almost fully completed. That was put together by the skill sets of City on a Hill. Beyond the slab that was poured, every single thing in that building was done by you, by people. The remodels, the landscaping, all of it is done by you, the skill sets of City on a Hill. Uh, coming up in September, September 9th and 10th, we are having our year lead event. I mentioned at the welcome. I'm going to do a, a vision night that Friday night. It's always kind of a fun time to gather around and just sort of reorient ourselves to the vision of City on a Hill, give you some information regarding uh, this year and the upcoming year. It's going to be a, a, a hopefully a, a quality time together. We'll have food. We'll do it exactly like we did last year. This year, we are not bringing an outside speaker in. We're leveraging one of the skill sets that we have within the body. We're bringing in Bart Castle, who has extensive experience teaching in seminars and conferences, to talk about some really important things with regard to leadership. This is one of the values that we have with regard to the skill sets within the community of faith. We also leverage resources for service. Look at verse 14. Paul says, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Last week we talked pretty extensively about good works. And so I won't say a whole lot more about that this morning. If you were not here last week, go back and listen. I will say that uh, we should absolutely leverage resources at this church for the purpose of service. Service in the church and in the community. I will say, and I I said this last year at City on a Hill's uh, vision night for year lead, I will continue to say it, that when we talk about the strength of City on a Hill, if you find yourself inviting people to this church, which I hope you will, I hope that you will, you will be compelled by the vision and the work here to want to see other people you know come and be a part of what we're doing. But what I said to you last year and what I will continue to say is that when you invite people, do not invite people based on the preaching or the worship music or the facilities or the, the youth or children's, and here's why. Because I, I believe we do all these things very well. I'm proud of the ministry, the leadership, the worship, the teaching arm of this church. I'm very, very proud of it. There's about a thousand great churches that do those things well. There are, truly. I, I, we preach the Bible. So any other churches that preach the Bible, they're, they're, in my opinion, they're kind of right there with us, right? The thing that makes us unique, the greatest thing, resource that we have at City on a Hill that we can leverage is you, and your experiences that speak to the reality, the difficulty, and the pain of life. 
that have been addressed by the gospel and have been worked through through a rigorous Christ-exalting process where you have found help, hope, and healing and want to give that away to other people. That is our greatest resource. That is what sets us apart more than anything else, more than any other church, is that we have the ability, the willingness, and the experience to speak clearly to issues that most churches are not willing to speak to. So if you're sexually abused, come receive help, hope, and healing. You're addicted to pornography, drugs, alcohol, you're welcome here. Come receive help, hope, and healing. You're depressed, you're struggling with depression, come receive help, hope, and healing. You're angry, you're codependent, relationships are falling apart, come receive help, hope, and healing. You have guilt from an abortion that you've had or grief over the loss of a loved one or PTSD from trauma in your life, come and receive the help, hope, and healing at City on a Hill. And not from me, not from me, not from a professional. I am, I'm all about training, I'm all about education, clearly. But if you are struggling from something like sexual abuse, I don't want you paired up with a seminarian. I want you paired up with another woman who can empathize you, who, is, who has been sexually abused herself and has received help, hope, and healing and can share that hope with you as you lean in. You, our people, your experience is the greatest resource that we have here at City on a Hill, and we have to leverage it. We have to leverage it. That is the saints doing the work of the ministry that Ephesians talks about. Are you seeing the value of community here? Don't attempt to fight this stuff in the world on your own. We're a body. We're a community. Don't let it go to waste. We, we lean on community relationships. We leverage community resources last. We link community to other communities. I love this one. This is one that we don't talk about enough. When we read Paul's letters, specifically the end of Paul's letters, we come away with the idea that the church in the ancient world linked itself to other churches much more intimately than we do today. Look at verse 15. He says, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. There's this idea that wherever Paul is at this time and the community of faith that he is with, that the people there are longing to see those believers in Crete. They're longing to demonstrate their love to them through service and kindness. And that there is a longing from Crete to see them and receive them and do ministry together. You just get the sense of connectedness. They gave to one another, they shared resources, they ministered to one another, they visited with one another. Some churches would send volunteers, sometimes whole families, just to go to other churches that needed help. And, I mean, imagine that kind of mindset, that if we had that here. There's that great story in Acts chapter 11 uh, where persecution breaks out in the ancient world after the death of Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen. As a result of that, Christians began being brutally persecuted. And so they leave that area and disperse into other regions. One of the regions that they end up in is a place called Antioch. Antioch had tons of newly displaced Christians and it became a hotbed for ministry. These Christians, these displaced Christians, went into Antioch and they just picked up where they left off, proclaiming the gospel, sharing Jesus, sharing the help, hope, and healing of Jesus. And it says that many Hellenists came to faith, Greek people. Just a super outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And news of this outbreak of faith makes its way to Jerusalem, which is sort of the headquarters of Christianity in the book of Acts. It says in Acts 11.22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So they hear about it, they hear about what's going on, they're like, hey, Barnabas, hey, uh, you've, you've mentioned that you've wanted to serve more, right? 
well, can you, um, would you uproot your entire life and just go there for a year or so? Would that be fine? And Barnabas is like, yeah, yeah, I'll pack my bags. I'll be on my way this week. I mean, look, I'm just, maybe I'm salty. I, I plead with you to download the Church Center app. That's all I'm asking. What if I asked you, like, hey, uh, Refuge Church in Cibolo needs, needs people. Would, would you five families, would you just be willing, if it's okay, to sell your home and just and move there? Could we do that? I mean, this is, this is radical. But this is what Barnabas does. He moves cities. He goes to Antioch. He leads more people to Christ. It's, it's kind of awesome. He gets there. All these people are coming to faith. And he starts to realize, like, I can't shepherd all these people by myself. And so he goes on sabbatical for like a week, travels to Tarsus. He uh, picks up Apostle Paul, and they both come back. And in Acts 11.26, says, for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That's where the name Christian comes from. Now, I unpack all that to make the point. Antioch turns into a mega important place in church history. Antioch and Alexandria are like the two schools of, of Christian thinking for hundreds of years. None of that happens without the faithfulness and the willingness of Barnabas to just go, to just go do, to go do what he needed to do. And the willingness of the church in Jerusalem to lose a guy like Barnabas, who was probably a great asset to that church, and just say, hey, go and use, let God use you in this other city. They need you more than we do. It's not a weekend. I'm going to refuge for a weekend. Bar- Barnabas went for a whole year because it, mattered because communities were linked together. What if we practice this today? Can, can you imagine the impact? What if, what if when church plants had a need, church leaders of, of larger, sizable churches were to say, hey, who of our best leaders would be willing to go and do that? Who of our best? Churches today are, are so competitive, and I hate it. It honestly, it makes me sick. It drives me crazy. This is the heart that I want us to embody at City on a Hill. A willingness to say, he's one of my best leaders I have, and he's willing to go and help that church that we partner with, and I'm not gonna stand in his way. I'm not gonna manipulate, I'm not gonna say, well, but what about what God wants you to do here? Because it's bigger than City on a Hill. The kingdom is bigger than, than East Fort Worth. James was telling me about a call that he was on this past week, uh, people in Arizona. One of them was a small church of about 20 to 30 people. One of them was a church of about 900 people. And they're both talking to him about the Fearless series and wanting to implement it to help other, other people. And the one from the nine, the, the representative from the larger church, she's got like a master's in psychology. She's, she serves as a psychologist in the Arizona area, wherever they're from. The Arizona area, it's a whole state. Wherever they're from in Arizona. And... Um, and she was saying, she said, you know, there's a four to five month backup right now for people who have mental health crises. You have a mental health issue, you want to go and get help, four to five month waiting list. Even for children, four to five months. And James, you know, began to share with her, can, can you imagine though if you trained people in your church, 30 people, 40 people in your thousand member church to do this kind of work, this kind of fearless series, or, or life change, or uh, codependency, or, or some other uh, type of work that deals with the mental health issues. Can you imagine if you guys had 15 groups that you could begin ministering to that city? Can you imagine if you two churches together partnered together 
and you began training and equipping other churches to do this kind of work as well, how that would decimate that four to five month wait and it would elevate the church as the safe place and Jesus as the hero, it only happens if churches are willing to do it together. It only happens if if we're willing to link up. Imagine the common good it would do for the sake of the gospel. This is Titus. This is the wisdom of the Apostle Paul to a pastor in a church or churches in Crete, a culture that was increasingly hostile to Christianity. Uh, I believe the words of Paul to Titus were beneficial for him, and I believe they're beneficial for us too. And so as we wrap up quickly, I want to give you just five closing thoughts. I'm not going to elaborate much on them, but just five takeaways that you can take with you as we end this series this morning. Number one, if the local church is not unified around sound doctrine, it will never make a meaningful impact on the world. That's takeaway number one. What we believe and how we carry out what we believe matters a great deal. We need elders in the church that meet the qualifications of Titus and Timothy. We need order. We need a way to deal with division when it comes up in our church to protect the unity. We must be unified around sound doctrine. Number two, if we are going to fight for biblical value, we better also live by it. We should advocate absolutely for biblical values in our world and in our culture. You have a voice. You ought to use that voice when you can. With that being said, if you are fighting for values that you are not living by, you are not living above reproach, you are disqualified from weighing in, you need to sit down and be quiet. Living above reproach matters in the context of the culture war, and if you are not doing it, you're not qualified to speak to how the world is not doing it either. Number three, The only remedy against injustice in the world is the gospel. Not politics, not protesting, not social activism. The gospel of grace is the only remedy that really addresses the human heart. So weaponize it, proclaim it. It is the only thing that has power to address the root of all injustice, which is sin. Number four, remember that the people you most vehemently disagree with are no different from you apart from the grace of God. That's an important one. It is very easy to live with an us versus them mentality. You have to reject that mentality. You have to embody sympathy for those people and share the hope that you have in Christ because at one time, you were no different than they are. And number five, do not engage in the culture war alone. Lean in to the relationships that you have here. Leverage the resources that you have here. Leverage and support other Christian communities in this area. The sermon series is finished. We completed it. Yes, yes. The culture war is not. We've taken in what Paul has had to say to Titus, and now it's time for us to begin living it out. Pray with me. Father, thank you for uh, just a a fruitful, a challenging, but a fruitful time uh, throughout this small letter to Titus. There are so many ways in which we find relevance in your living and active word, and certainly this series uh, did not disappoint in that regard. We see 
how we are really not any different today than what the world was 2,000 years ago. Help us, God, be committed to the truth of your word. Help us live it out with some kind of consistency. Help us understand the qualifications you've called each of us to, regardless of who we are, what our age is, what our gender is. Knowing that, as we live above reproach, we earn a voice in the public square to speak to things that perhaps other Christians who don't take this as seriously are not as able to speak to. And God, would you just light a fire in the hearts of your people here at City on a Hill to see the great value that you have put in each of them, their stories, their experiences, their pain, their woundedness, These are not things that disqualify them or make them less Christian. These are things that empower them and equip them as Christians to do the kind of radical gospel ministry that you call us to. And so would you help help them see themselves, help them see their identity through your eyes and not their eyes and move them to begin changing other people's lives who have shared painful experiences to bring the help, hope, and healing of Jesus in a way that only you can through broken and yet mended vessels. Lord, we love you. We are grateful that you call us out of darkness and into light. We pray these things in the powerful name of the Savior. Amen. Amen. I, uh, <clears throat> I want to tell you that was, uh, it was uh, a lot of fun to go through that, that uh, series. We've got a few weeks where we're gonna be kind of doing some uh, standalone stuff. James will be here next week, Taryn the 21st. We'll do a talk on marriage through Ephesians uh, in uh, late August, and then Chris will be here Labor Day. And then September 11th, we begin Coffee Cup Faith. And uh, I've already got six cups from Mardell. They're loaded, they're ready. And we're going to have a great time in this series. So I hope that you'll begin inviting people. It's going to be a blast. God bless you. We'll see you next time.